Amen. I don't know how many of you guys realize this, but our country is in the middle of what's going to be a several-year commemoration of the Civil War. We're now 150 years on the other side of the worst catastrophe that has ever happened to America. So we're, you should just go ahead and gear up for lots of specials and documentaries and op-eds trying to decide what the legacy of that war really is, remembering the details of it and applying those details to whatever's going on in our lives today. I've already seen some of these things reach the surface, and it's reminded me. I, I don't know if this is true. Somebody can check Wikipedia for me probably right now as I say this. I once heard that all the books, if you added up all the books written about the Civil War since the Civil War, it averages out to something like a book a day for the last 150 years. Now, don't hold me to that. That's not my stat. I didn't do the research. I've just seen that in a couple of places. Somebody look at Wikipedia and let me know if I'm wrong. A book a day for 150 years. And one of the main questions a lot of these books are trying to get at is why. Why did so many people have to die in that war? What was it really all about? And, and especially because there was a winner and a loser, you've got two sides that are still sort of living on in the later generations, trying to decide if there's anything salvageable from both camps in that war. What can we sort of hold on to that, that was worth it all, the carnage that still haunts us when we think about it seriously? One of the books that, that, uh, that one of my favorite attempts to explain where the war comes from, uh, I read a few years ago. It almost won the Pulitzer Prize. Really great book. Very famous among nerds like me. It's called uh, Southern Honor, a guy named Bertram Wyatt Brown. What he argued is that really, even though slavery was the main issue about the war, if, that, if slavery was the gun, so to speak, what pulled the trigger was this deep-rooted, ancient code of honor that governed how the South lived. The book is called Southern Honor, and, and it's really just an, an analysis of the way that the, the South worked, the way that the people who sort of set the terms of that culture thought about the world. So he explains things like duels, like how you could get insulted and end up shooting at each other over that insult. His explanation is that back then, in the South in particular, Everybody knew everybody. It was a scattered society where you mostly lived on farms, and there weren't a whole lot of people down here. It wasn't nearly as populated as the north. So everybody knew everybody, and in what he calls a face-to-face culture, it matters how people think about you. You are known in a way that someone in a more densely populated area might not be known. So reputation was everything for them. That's why they would, if somebody insults you, you challenge them to a duel, you're going to go to to arms over an insult because to be thought of poorly meant a lot of really bad things for you in that society. You didn't shake that label easily. To be thought of well in that society meant a lot of really good things for you. I bring that up this morning because I think that it's a little bit harder for us to appreciate what life in a, in a small face-to-face society was like. I think that the South 150 years ago and went to war over a breach of honor, was a lot more like the world of Mark and his gospel, the world in which Jesus came preaching a very countercultural message. Yes, you could say that the, the concern for reputation, for honor, is, is always with us. It still is now. You could say that's really what Facebook is all about, status updates and 
photos and who's doing what where and who likes what and who doesn't like what. All of this is really about defining yourself and trying to shape your reputation for others. You can say there, yes, we have, we have some of that still going on today, but come on, it's happening on Facebook. If there's anything less face-to-face than Facebook, I don't know what it is. We've lost some of that. I think that the South from 150 years ago helps us understand a little bit more about the context in which Jesus broke onto the scene. I bring this up because what's really radical about Jesus' message is that he comes into history claiming to be the Messiah and acting like the Messiah, doing all these amazing things as Messiah, and yet telling people not to, not to tell anyone who he is. He comes not trying to establish a name for himself, but, but for something that, at least in the first eight chapters of Mark, we really aren't sure what he's here for yet. He's, he's, he's putting people off when they try to give him praise and, and spread the word about him. Jesus comes into a society that's all about honor, reputation, and he puts it off even more radically. As we looked at near the the end of last year, Jesus comes into that society admitting to be the Messiah, admitting to be this amazing person who's got a well-deserved reputation in the expectations of, of Israel for thousands of years, and yet he's claiming that as Messiah, as this one who's due a lot of glory and honor, he's got to do this incredibly shameful thing. That, in fact, what he's come here to do is to suffer and to die, to be abused, mistreated at the hands of those he's come to save. He's come, in other words, for shame. What Mark has told us so far in the first eight chapters of the book What it's been building towards is a conviction that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he's the one that was promised to come and act as Messiah, as Deliverer. But somehow, and for some reason, he's going to do this great and glorious thing in a through or by means of an incredible act of almost unimaginable shame. That's what we might call the Christian paradox. Paradox is something that is true, but seems like it can't possibly be true. It's made up of a couple different things that if one of them is true, you would think necessarily the other one cannot be true, but they both are. That's what a paradox is. The Christian paradox, the paradox at the center of Christianity is the fact that Jesus' greatest glory, his triumph, his offer of life comes only through shame, only through weakness and through death. That's something that Mark has already introduced us to. It's something that we get extra insight in the passage at the beginning of Mark chapter 9. I'll admit, coming into this, this passage is intimidating because it's a weird story. It's a story known throughout Christian history as the transfiguration. A story of Jesus going through this very mysterious transformation in the way that he looked to his disciples. It's a story where he takes them up onto the top of the mountain... Somehow God comes to him there, and his appearance changes, and he's conversing with long-dead prophets, and a cloud hovers over them and speaks out of, out of the cloud to them, naming him as the Son of God. It's a strange story. I think the key to understanding what this story means and where it fits in Mark's gospel is to see where it falls. This story comes right after Jesus has just made this unexpected announcement about the way he's going to do his work. It comes right after that conversation between Jesus and his disciples where he says, I'm going to suffer and die, 
And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross too. That's going to mean suffering for you because they'll treat you the way they treated me. This was a jarring thing for the disciples who had just come to confess that he was Messiah. So now in that context, the first verse of chapter 9 says, it concludes that conversation with a promise that some people standing there hearing Jesus talk were going to see the kingdom in its power. Then the verse 2 says, six days later, a time stamp that's rare in Mark. He rarely ever says specifically when something happens. He says it here because he wants you to know that this that's coming, this new story, is connected to what's just happened. Six days, within a week of this dramatic conversation with his disciples, this event happens to them. The point is, here we have a dramatic, unmatched display of Jesus' glory in the context of Jesus promising he's going to suffer and die. We have glory on the one hand, but only through shame on the other hand. My goal for us today is to try to understand this paradox, what it is, and what insight we can get from this chapter, the beginning of of Mark chapter 9, and then to try to tease out what it would look like for us 2,000 years later, followers of Jesus, to live this paradox, to shape our lives based on it. That's where we're headed today. First, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1? Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, first, understanding this paradox. What is it that we can get from Mark chapter 9 that helps us to understand the fact that Jesus is all glorious as the Son of God and the Messiah, but that his glory comes only through shame? The story of the transfiguration and Jesus' explanation of it, beginning in verse 9, show us that the glory to come comes through shame. What does the event show us about the glory of Jesus? In some ways, the event speaks for itself. The details of it stand alone. They're powerful. 
some of that gets sort of, the edge for that sort of gets knocked off for us because many of us are familiar with it. We've heard it since we were kids, and, and so it doesn't jar us in the way that it probably jarred those who first read it. The details are incredible. Consider the, eyewit- the, the, the eyewitness details. They, they, they seem like they're, they're so specific. They're so nuanced. that it's, it's one of those reasons we think that Mark was written by someone who had an eyewitness right there in his ear, probably Peter. Look at the description of Jesus' clothes. What it looks like for him to transform, to metamorphosis. The word comes from the Greek word for metamorphosis. What it looks like for him is described here in terms of his clothes, that they, they almost become luminescent. They turn intensely white. He's as whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. Consider the fact that he's chatting with Elijah and Moses. These were the two icons of the old order, of the Jewish way of life. They were the ones most associated with the end of the world that everyone was looking for. Moses as the guy who wrote the law. Elijah as sort of the, the, the symptom, symbolic figure of all the prophets. Jesus was talking to them. That raises his status. It shows him to be glorious. Consider the cloud and the voice speaking out of it. It sounds so much like all of the major events in the Old Testament where God speaks to people, like, like, like he did to Moses on Mount Sinai, like he did with Elijah on Mount Horeb. He comes to them on a mountain, in a cloud, and speaks out of it. That's happening here to Jesus. They would have been familiar with those stories. Now they're seeing it happen before their eyes. The details of the event, in other words, are there to show that Jesus is incredibly glorious. All told, these are the things that you'd expect if you're Peter, and you'd just become convinced that he was the Messiah. All that talk about suffering and death, that's what didn't make sense. This would have made sense. This is what he was looking for. This is more like it. And that's the basic intended effect of the story. It's to point us to who Jesus really is. Death isn't the whole story, in other words. This guy is also the Son of God. But there's a deeper symbolism here that shows us even more about the glory of Christ. And I think the key to seeing it is in Peter's response to the things that he's saying. You can always depend on Peter for a good, quick, sort of visceral response to whatever's happening. Peter was famous for speaking before he'd had time to think. And he does it again here for us. Just as soon as he'd seen all this happening, Peter says to Jesus, it's good we're here. We got this. We're going to build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's easy to sympathize with why he'd want to do this. I mean, he admits, this is another one of those details that sounds like it was written by an eyewitness. He admits they were just scared out of their mind. They didn't know what to say. Look at verse, at verse 5 or verse 6. He did not know what to say. They were terrified. They were scared out of their minds. So he just acts. It's easy to understand why he proposed this in particular because he would think he was complimenting Jesus. We're going to put Jesus on a level with Elijah and Moses, the two superstars of Old Testament history. Jesus belongs with them. Let's build a shelter for each of you. We'll keep this moment. We'll hold on to it. We'll be able to return to it. Maybe even this moment right here on the top of this mountain is going to be the moment where the kingdom of God begins to build and expand in this world. We're going to capture it with our shelters. That's what Peter was after. To put Jesus on their level in his mind was a tribute to Jesus. But this is also the fundamental flaw in Peter's proposal. He puts Jesus on a level with Moses and Elijah. At this point, again, would have seemed like a compliment. 
No one was more revered in Jewish life than they were. But Peter shows here that he's still not fully understood or appreciated who Jesus is. I think that is the point of this immediate response from the cloud. Jesus doesn't respond to Peter. When Peter says, makes this proposal, okay, we got Elijah and Moses here, let's try to keep it here. We're going to build these shelters. Jesus isn't the one who responds. All of a sudden, just as he had with Moses and Elijah before, a cloud comes, God veiling himself in his glory in a cloud and speaks to them. They're all still there. Apparently, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, and all the disciples are still there when God speaks. Peter's made his proposal. God responds to his proposal. And what he says is, this is my son. Listen to him. Here's what Peter missed. For Peter, the fact that Elijah and Moses were there made Jesus great. They were a sign that Jesus was a wonderful and even unprecedented human being. What he should have realized is that Moses and Elijah only really mattered because of Jesus. That Jesus made them great. Moses and Elijah represent, as I've mentioned, the law and the prophets. That was kind of a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament during Jesus' Jesus' life and ministry. When people referred to the law and the prophets, they were talking about the Old Testament. Here we have the pillars of that old order. The law was there, of course, to show what holiness looked like, to remind people that they fell short of what holiness is supposed to look like. The prophets come in to show people how far they'd they'd fallen short of the law, to, to hold the law up over here, to hold a mirror to them, and to say, look at yourself. You're not ready to meet God. Judgment is coming, and to promise that one day deliverance would come as well. The law to show sin and how far how far you'd fallen short. The prophets to to show you just how just where you stand in light of the law, to make sure that that's clear to you, and then to promise deliverance. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of both. He is the Savior made necessary by the law, and he's the Savior promised by the prophets. The point of Elijah and Moses is to prepare people for Jesus. He is the reason Elijah and Moses mattered, not vice versa. That's really the point of Jesus' discussion after his resurrection, Luke chapter 24. We get that account where Jesus meets with these disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. They're upset about the fact that he's just died. They wonder what it all means. And Jesus, we're told in Luke chapter 24, begins to explain to them from the law and the prophets all the things said about himself, the things that point to who he really is. Moses and Elijah, bottom line, matter because they point to Jesus. That's really what our elementary kids are studying in Sunday school. The whole curriculum is about seeing the Bible as one massive story that ultimately is about Jesus. And that's what Peter should have understood when he saw Jesus there. He wanted to build three shelters to put Jesus on the level with his heroes, Elijah and Moses. But that was to far undershoot the significance of who Jesus really is. The transfiguration is about Jesus' glory, not not there. They're the shadows. Jesus is the substance. So you can see why God would say this to Peter. I think we need to change the emphasis in the text. When we hear this voice speaking, you can almost see the cloud hovering over all of them. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses are standing there talking. God comes in the form of a cloud and he says, This is my son. Listen to him. Don't worry about shelters for these other guys. They're important. 
But you've got God Himself made flesh among you. Focus on Him. Listen to what He has to say. That's the point of the transfiguration. What they get here is a window into who Jesus really is, into what all people are one day going to see. He's the Son of God, and He's the one and only culmination of everything that the Bible's been building towards. That's the glory in this account. That's the glory. The other side is, the other side of the paradox is shame. That somehow, mysteriously, Jesus attains this glory and has it recognized by everyone everywhere fully only through unimaginable shame. It's very appropriate that the final words of this account of the transfiguration are God telling the disciples to listen to Jesus. Because what Jesus had been saying before this story and what Jesus immediately now turns to say again is that he has got to die. The Son of Man must suffer. God's command that they listen to him is a command to let Jesus redefine who they understood God to be, to let him dictate the terms of his identity and his significance rather than letting their preconceived notions of what he should be like rule the day. Listen to him and what he says. What he says is that he has to suffer. On on its surface, this little conversation begins in verse 9, goes to verse 13. It's the toughest thing to understand about this larger story. Partly because these questions seem to come out of nowhere. Look at verse 11. They've just seen Jesus transfigured. They've just heard Jesus say that they shouldn't say anything about this until... He's risen from the dead. They remember that he's supposed to die and then rise again. But their question is about Elijah. Their question in verse 11 is, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It seems to come out of nowhere. Jesus' response also seems to come out of nowhere. He admits, yeah, Elijah's going to come to restore all things. But then out of nowhere, verse 12, he says, how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Where does that come from? That's not what they asked about. At least that's what it seems like on the surface. Here's how I think we can understand this. Jesus starts the ball rolling in the conversation. Right after they've seen this amazing thing, they start down the hill, and he tells them to say nothing about it until after he's risen from the dead. This obviously implies that he's got to die first. So it brings up the whole conversation that they'd had at the end of chapter 8. So the disciples begin to discuss this among themselves. They keep it to themselves this time. They're not having that discussion from Jesus. They saw how that went when Peter tried to, to challenge Jesus over, over whether or not he was going to die. Jesus basically says, you're Satan, get behind me. They're not going to go there again. They talk about it amongst themselves quietly on the way down. But they don't get it. They don't know what it means. You can almost see them trying to come up with a way to bring this up with Jesus that wouldn't get them slammed down in the way that Peter was. They've just seen this amazing account of Jesus' glory. That makes sense to them if he's the Messiah. They're trying to square it, though, with this prediction of his death. How do these two things fit together? When they finally do address him, it's a question about Elijah, something that seems unrelated on the surface to their conversation about his death and resurrection. And I've, I read a lot of different explanations of this this week, and, and it still remains a little bit mysterious. But here's what I think the best way we can understand this is. In their question about Elijah, who, was, who represented the, the, the end of the age in their minds, they were really asking why Jesus is talking about suffering 
if they've already seen Elijah's here and we know he's the one who's going to restore all things. It's a backhanded way to challenge the idea that he's got to suffer. They see Elijah, they assume restoration is here. They remember that the last verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 are about a a prophet who will come, Elijah who will return, and he will call people back to faithfulness, and the hearts of the fathers will turn. That's the end of chapter 4 in Malachi. They're expecting that now that they've seen Elijah, that time is here. The restoration they've been waiting for has come. So why are you talking about death and resurrection? That doesn't make sense. I think what we have here, in other words, this weird out-of-nowhere question about Elijah is really a question about Jesus and about whether or not he really has to suffer. He concedes in his response that, yes, Elijah must come. Verse 12 says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And at the end of verse 13, he even says, Elijah has come already. And not just in the vision that you just saw on the mountain, but this is a veiled reference to John the Baptist who came as a prophet like Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus. Elijah's come, you're right. He has to come before all things can be restored. But that full restoration, the full restoration that Elijah has come to foreshadow, this greatest glory imaginable, only happens through suffering. The way that things get restored, the way this glory is fully realized is through the greatest shame imaginable. That's, I think, how we understand his, the center of his response to them, which comes in 12, verse 12. He said, yeah, well, I just got to come and restore all things. Then he says, then the next sentence, out of nowhere, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Yes, Elijah's got to come. But here's the answer to the question you were really asking. The Son of Man does have to suffer. There's no way around it. The restoration itself depends on it. So, what's the Christian paradox? It's two things, both true that seem incompatible. It's a promise of glory, that Jesus is God's Son, that He's unmatched by anything else in our experience. It's a promise of total restoration, of of peace with God and with each other that, that won't admit any kind of exception. That's the glory that the transfiguration is there to offer us a glimpse into. We're told this story as a reminder that this is what's coming and that we should rejoice in it. It's to reinforce their confidence in ours in who Jesus is. But that full restoration that's Jesus' greatest glory, the one that's going to lead everyone on earth to recognize him for who he is and to give him the honor that he deserves, that glory only comes through suffering and unimaginable shame. Not only are these two, glory and the shame, compatible with each other, they, you can only get one, the glory, without the other, the shame. That's the paradox at the center of Christianity. And it's, it's one of the things that most sets Christianity apart from the other religions of the world and from the value systems of all of those around us. Now, some of you may be hesitant today to commit to Christianity because it seems like this power-hungry institution tool in the hands of politicians, means to get greater wealth or fame for these leaders, these TV preachers or whoever else you may have known in your background. I wish I could tell you that it's never been true for anyone who's claimed Christian identity, that no one has ever tried to use Christianity to get power for themselves. 
But unfortunately, that's, that would be wrong. What I can tell you is that as to the essence of Christianity, what it is in the mouth of its founder, nothing could be further from the truth. I love the way that Tim Keller writes about this. Pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, he wrote, God in the place of ultimate power reverses places with the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. The prophets always sang songs about God as one who brought down the rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the poor. But never could they have imagined that God himself would come down off his ultimate throne and suffer with the oppressed so that they might be lifted up. This pattern of the cross means that the world's glorification of power, might, and status is exposed and defeated. On the cross, Christ wins through losing. He triumphs through defeat. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth via giving all away. Jesus Christ turns the values of the world upside down. That's the Christian paradox. Jesus Christ turns the values of the world upside down. So, quickly, as those who follow Jesus, we can expect that our lives should look or reflect something of what Jesus' own life and ministry was all about. There's no getting around the fact that this paradox we just described relates mostly to Jesus. He's the one who was transfigured. He's the one who ultimately had to die. The paradox is first and foremost about him. But as his followers, the template for what our lives are supposed to be, the pattern of our lives, is shaped by the fact that our Savior gained glory through shame. Let me give you three examples of what it would look like to live this paradox 2,000 years later as believers in Jesus. First, we've got to embrace Jesus' call to suffering. Remember where this story falls in Mark's gospel. It comes right after this dramatic conversation between Jesus and his disciples where he told them in no uncertain terms that if you want to follow me, it means taking up your cross. It means walking a death march. It's going to mean that you are treated no better than Jesus was treated. We naturally crave power, success, and notoriety, wealth. We may not live in one of those face-to-face cultures, but those things are still true for us. We still have that desire, drive in us. These are the sorts of things that guide our work, that guide our relationships with other people, that guide how we spend our time and our money. Jesus' call is to turn this natural order upside down. His call is a reminder that no matter how successful you are in the eyes of the world, no matter even if you were to gain it all, that you've still got nothing that can outlive the death that is certainly waiting for you. The way to get truly ahead is to Rest on Jesus. The way to get the only name for yourself that's going to stand the test of time, that's ultimately going to outlive your life in this world, is to give all away and to claim Jesus' name as your own. That's the paradox in our experience. If we want a life, we have got to give our life away. If we want security, we have got to accept giving away all of the things in this world that could give that security to us and trusting in The security Jesus provides. That's the upside-down paradox that's our experience. If you're considering Christianity today, I'll be honest. It is not offering you a promise that all is going to be well in your life. 
that you'll have more money and you'll have perfect kids and you'll have a job that you love and that you're really good at. But it's a promise that those things aren't lasting anyway. It's a promise that Jesus gives you the only acceptance that you'll ever need. That Jesus gives you an acceptance so full and complete that it frees you to turn from trying to build a name for yourself to serving other people. Because your name in Christ is established forever. Doesn't it ring true in your experience anyway? That the things you spend your life driving for, the new stuff that you love to get, ultimately doesn't give you any lasting pleasure anyway? Haven't you already found that the things you got for Christmas that you thought you wanted so bad were, have, have already sort of dulled? The shine on them is already kind of dulled? That's true for adults just as much as it is for kids. Haven't you gotten tired yet of trying to build something for yourself that seems like a carrot that's always held out in front of you that dissolves just when you think you've clamped down on it? Christianity is a promise to you that that's the way life will always seem unless you give all away in order to, to secure the only thing that's lasting. Second, work hard to appreciate the glory of Jesus. This, I think, is where I've been most convicted this week. So remember, this story of the transfiguration, it's here as a window into who Jesus really is. It's meant to balance all this talk about suffering and self-denial with a real display of glory, to say that if you live in this way taking up your cross, following Jesus, this is what's waiting for you. A glory that you can't even imagine is to be yours because you're hitching your wagon to Jesus. That's what the story is there for. It's meant to encourage us while we live in this world according to the values of the next world to remind us that this is what's ours in Jesus. But here I'm talking mostly to the Christians among you, especially to those of you who, like me, have been believers for a while. We've got to fight not to settle for a lesser vision of Jesus' greatness. We're so familiar oftentimes with stories like this one that, it, they, at least for me, they hit me like water on a duck's back and just sort of roll off. I'm not very impressed by the glory of it all. And part of that may be personality. I'm not that gushy about much of anything, except maybe college football, ironically. But I think even for those of us who don't have personalities that are prone to these moments of transcendence and you know, th- these waves of emotion, stories like the one we just read and, and examined today are meant to impress us. They're meant to, to, to stir something inside of us that all too often I don't see stirred inside of me. I think about Paul. I think about the way he writes himself into almost a religious ecstasy in Romans chapter 11, where he's been writing about the gospel and the beauty in the gospel. And at the end of it, he just he sort of throws up his hands and he and admits that it's that it's almost too it's too glorious to even get our minds around. It's too much for us. And he just falls into praise. It wasn't because he saw the transfiguration happen in front of him. It's not like we can fall back and say, if we had been where where Peter and James and John were, then we would experience that kind of glory of Jesus and we'd really be impressed by it. Paul got there. He got to that point by thinking about Jesus and the salvation that he offers and tracing it all through the Old Testament, just as the disciples were supposed to have done when they saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses. That's what got Paul to that place of awe and wonder. That's the goal for us. But they're so familiar It's a matter of spiritual sight, really. That's why Paul prays at the beginning of 
Ephesians, the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know what are the riches of their inheritance. They would see, in other words, with new eyes to relish what is promised to them. Ultimately, that's what we've got to ask for. I think the effect that the transfiguration story should have on us is to remind us that there is a glory that balances the shame and suffering and self-denial in our experience. And we've got to fight in the nitty-gritty of our lives to experience even a foretaste of what's going to be ours at the end of time. We've got to fight for that now and pray for eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. There are lots of ways to do it. You can read good books, read Scripture prayerfully, even when it seems dry and fruitless to you. Confess your apathy and your distraction to God and ask Him to change you. There's no way we can recreate the transfiguration. We don't want to belittle its status as this unique thing, this moment in time. But it was put here by Mark to impress us. It was put here as a reminder that the suffering of this life, the apparent weakness in our faith, is not ultimate, but it's a necessary means to a glorious end. It's put here to remind us that Jesus is uniquely trustworthy. So we've got to fight and to pray for eyes to see that. Finally, we've got to engage the world through service, not conquest. I don't have time to get into what this point really gets at. But our posture as believers towards those who don't believe is supposed to be shaped by Jesus' own posture. We, are, we have to be willing to see the gospel triumph in the lives of those who don't believe, not because we beat it into them, but because we model sacrificial service for them. We've got to seek the advancement of the kingdom, in other words, not through claiming cultures, through laws, through targeting the, 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 the halls of power in the culture in the way that Christians have tried so many times and failed in the past. We've got to seek the advancement of the kingdom through service not through conquest. We, like Jesus, have to target those who we stand to gain nothing from, who have nothing to give us because they are poor and marginalized, but who represent the very people that Jesus came to lift up. We, in other words, not seeking to establish a name for ourselves, have got to be willing to see the gospel made famous, not through the people we stand to gain something from, but through those who have nothing to offer in return. In other words, Jesus' paradox whereby he gets his glory ultimately through shame, shapes the way we exercise our mission in the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, this text is too mysterious for us to get our minds around fully. We admit that we are weak in our understanding. We're distracted. We admit that we are not impressed as we should be by the glory of your son, Jesus. So what we ask for is eyes to see. We ask for a supernatural insight into the power of the gospel that your son came to embody and to proclaim. We ask for that even now. And we ask for it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.